it's so easy to want to put on a cape and jump in and fix things for our kids to make the problem be better. And, and it's not that we never do that, but it's so much better if kids can, with our help, fix the problems for themselves. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. Today, I am excited to bring back to the show Dr. William Stixrud and Ned Johnson. Many parents in this Tilt community know Bill and Ned as the authors of the fantastic, game-changing book, The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives, in part because, admittedly, I mention it a lot on this show. It fundamentally changed my parenting game in a very positive, tangible way. And now Bill and Ted have written a new book called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home, which, again, I just can't say enough good things about. As you can guess, their new book is packed with scripts, dialogues, mantras, and powerful specific language for parents stemming from the most common questions Bill and Ned get from parents. Namely, what do you actually say to kids? This book covers everything from giving constructive feedback to handling anxiety, both ours and our kids, to talking about sleep, screens, and the pursuit of happiness, all based on Bill and Ned's core beliefs in autonomy, empathy, and connection. And what I love so much about this book is both Bill and Ned's compassionate approach to educating parents and that they draw on decades of experience working with and parenting kids just like ours. We cover so much ground in this conversation, more than I could possibly list here, but I will just say that this was definitely one of my favorite interviews I've done for this show. I had many aha moments, both reading this book and talking with Bill and Ned, so I really hope you get a lot out of this episode. And as always, thank you so much for being a part of this Tilt Parenting Revolution. If you want to stay in the loop about important news, new classes, and special live events, sign up at TiltParenting.com. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with Bill and Ned. Hey, Bill and Ned, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Debbie, great to be here. Yeah, wonderful to be here. I'm so excited. And I made a deal with myself as I was preparing that I'm not going to recap The Self-Driven Child because I mention that book all the time. My listeners are probably like, okay, we know you like that book. But I just want to say for listeners who haven't listened to that episode, haven't read the book, go back and listen to episode 158, where we have a rich conversation about that incredible book. Um, but today, I want to just dive right into your new book, because it is just incredible. So the book is called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. So I would love to know a little bit about why you wrote this book. Did this stem directly from the self-driven child and kind of talk about your process in in moving forward with this? So in, in the self-driven child, you know, we have two main concerns. You know, one is that this epidemic of mental health problems in, in, in kids and teenagers. And the second is that Ned and I see a lot of kids who have what we can call 
disordered motivation where they're either they don't want to work hard or they're just obsessively driven. And we, we discovered that the key to, to both really is a sense of control, having a sense of control over your own life. And so since we wrote the book, you know, we, we've, we've given hundreds of talks uh, about the book and, and we're just, you know, go to Seattle and we hear about second grade kids who are full on school refusal. We go to Dallas and, 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 and the counselors say that the fifth grade boys are having panic attacks due to the pressure of middle school. You know, we, we realize this is a pretty important message that, 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 that helping kids have a stronger sense of control over their own lives, let their brains work well so that they can focus and they aren't unduly anxious all the time. And our agent actually said, you got to make this easier for people. Write, write, a, write a book that, that gives more language, that tells people how to talk to kids in a way that will develop this healthy sense of control and this internal motivation and a stress system that's efficient, that, that works well and is just not on overdrive all the time. Do you have anything you want to add, Ned? Well, just, just that, um, that there are natural tendencies that we all fall into as loving parents and and so much of the book is about kind of how we talk to ourselves, but also how we talk to kids. Um, because in the, in the moment, we sometimes default to, to ways of communication that aren't quite what they want it to be. And so what do you say in some ways is designed to give people, if not full on scripts, certainly models and, and language that they can use. Because ultimately, you know, as loving parents, people just simply want to be effective with their kids. And so a, a lot of this is about language that is simply effective in in advancing, you know, happy relationships, a happy home with our kids. Um, but as the title suggests, that positions kids in ways to to have healthy motivation and stress tolerance. Uh, we resisted using the word resilience because it's been, you know, I think beaten to death by a million other books that are great. But really, when we talk about resilience, really is stress tolerance, the ability to bounce back. And so many of the things that we as, as parents do to want to help our kids actually work against their being able to handle things themselves. Um, and so we just felt like there was there was more to say. Um, and so that's why we wrote the book. It's also, I just want to, the little side note, it's so accessible. And I love the, um, you co-wrote it. And I, I've co-written a book with someone. And it can be tricky to get the voice and know how do you go back and forth. And you do that so seamlessly. But you also have you share your personal stories and it it's just done in a really readable way. I felt like I was, I mean, I know both of you, but I still mm. felt like I was sitting down having a coffee with you and kind of talking through these concepts. So it's just really well done. And before we go into some of the specifics of the book, when you're writing a book, are you thinking of like an avatar? Like who who is the parent? Is there kind of like a stereotypical uh, reader for this book that you were thinking of as you were writing this? Well, well for me, what, one of the things that we stumbled on is that parents, and what we'll talk about this, parents, when um, when their kids are, are having a hard time, we, we, we kind of fall into doing one of two things. We either try to try to fix things, try to solve the situation that's causing our kids distress because we don't like to see our kids, you know, struggle. Or, you know, we, we try to soothe them relentlessly to the degree that they don't learn to soothe themselves. And one of the things that occurred to us is it's the very parents who love their kids the most, who, who have sensitive kids, but who are also, as parents, sensitive to their own kids. And so we wanted to really acknowledge that so many of the, the things that we air quotes, you know, do wrong with kids are really just born out of the fact that we love them enormously. We want to do everything we can to help. 
And so this book for me was really written in mind for all the, for all these loving parents who are having kids who sometimes having a harder time than they wish. And we, that we want to help parents help their kids, but do it in a way that's very sensitive and respectful and honors the fact that, that parents, even though when they get air quotes making mistakes, they're doing it out of love. And so we, we wanted this to be very, conversational, as you say, Debbie, but also really, really gentle about the fact that, that all the things we do for our kids are, are, you know, because we love them. And I'll just say too, that, that I, I'm always thinking about in some ways about the kids that, that Ned sees tons of the kids who are the really, from the really high achieving schools, these kind of very stressed out kind of kids, overachiever types. And the kids that I see, a lot, all of whom have ADHD or, or, or learning disabilities or autism and, and challenge it and think about the stress related issues and the motivational issues with those kids. And, and also kids who don't have a lot of advantages and where are the connection for those families as well. I mean, in some ways, that we all have a human nervous system, and and and, and as babies, all we respond to is, is warmth and responsiveness, and and so a lot of the stuff about communication really is about connecting and 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 just using the kind of psychology that applies to everybody. Yeah, and I I do want to say that you know, this is what I would consider a mainstream parenting book, but so many of the examples are of families with differently wired children, it feels really accessible again and inclusive of so many different types of experiences. And I think that's just really nice to see as someone who serves, you know, the community that I serve, it's it's not always the case that we see ourselves reflected in the pages of a book. So hmm. love that. Um, and I actually want to go deeper then into the human nervous system. You have a whole chapter on being a non-anxious presence in our children's lives, which I can imagine as you were working on this and, you know, COVID and, you know, anxiety for everyone has really gone through the roof. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that piece, why it's so important that we work on our own anxiety? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, partly because, I mean, just to think about it, um, that when I first, I, I knew about this idea of a non-anxious presence for, for years. Okay, I, I learned it from a business consultant book. Um, but then I thought about it as applied to parents. I mean, if, if you got a baby who's, who's, who's upset, it's a lot easier to soothe the baby if you stay calm. If you got a three, you got a third grader who comes home and was the only kid in her friend group who didn't get invited to a birthday party, it's easier to really be helpful if you don't get upset too. And so just in, in terms of being able to, to communicate to kids that we love them, we accept them as they are, that, that we can handle their feelings, that, that working on our own anxiety and, and, and lowering our own stress level is really just, it's just adaptive. Um, you know, Ned sees a lot of kids who, who, who say, God, I, can't, I just got to see in a test. I can't tell my parents. And the parents are more upset than the kid is. And, and we think that if we really want to be wise, responsive parents, that we, we, we can't be flipping out and, and, and getting angry and overreacting to things. We want to model that. It's not that we can't have, we can't get angry at times. It's, it's, just, it's just that we want to move in that direction of being a non-anxious presence. We, we, we talk about um, the, the studies of, of rats, where rats have high licking and grooming um, mothers, who are very, very affectionate, and then low-stress mothers. And even if you would, if you'd foster rats from low licking and grooming, high stress mothers to these l- l- high licking and grooming, they turn out to be 
basically California laid back rats, that, that nurturing, that warmth. I mean, when is there a time when we don't, re, when we don't benefit from warmth and responsiveness? Yeah, and I, I would add to that, um, when our kids are stressed out, you know, we as, as you know, affectionate caregivers and parents, it'll, we, we'll be stressed out as well. And one of the things that, that I, from my perspective, and when we talk about the book, the, the two kind of traps that we fall into are either trying to solve the problem, trying to fix the problem for kids, or trying to say, you know, it's, it's okay, you know, everybody gets their heart broken, you know, three years from now, you won't care, you know, every, everybody, blah, blah, blah. But as Bill points out, th- this can convey to kids that, you know, that it's not okay that you have these hard feelings, that we can't handle them, or, or, or you can't handle them yourselves. But it also deprives kids of the opportunity to either soothe themselves or to solve the problem for themselves. Because it's so easy to want to put on a cape and jump in and fix things for our kids to make the problem be better. Which, And, and it's not that we never do that, but it's so much better if kids can, with our help, fix the problems for themselves. Because all the research on resilience simply says it's that experience coping, coping with something yourself that develops your ability to be more confident going forward. And even from a motivational perspective, we, we're all willing to take on a greater challenge, a greater threat, you know, on the ball field, in the classroom, outside of the home, if we know, if we get our butt kicked or have a terrible day, then we can retreat to home and have home be a safe base. But if, again, if I, if I come home and I'm super upset and my parents are like, oh my gosh, and oh my golly, kids can feel like it's kind of not okay to, to have things not go well, which if the charge is too high at home, then they're naturally going to not stretch themselves as much outside of the home. And we know that to really develop a healthy response, we, we, we do better to have kind of high stress and then full recovery, not kind of a constant level of, of moderate level of stress. We don't want that. And from my perspective, I think if anything has shown us, the real world right now has enough stressors. We don't need to get that at home. Let's make home be as stress-free and as loving as possible. And from a happy home perspective, it's so much easier to enjoy our kids if we're not anxious ourselves. And I'll, I'll just add that we didn't, we didn't really understand why being a consultant to your kid that we talk about in self and Child was so hard until we started lecturing about the book. We realized it's really because if your kid's doing something, you decide not to jump in and fix it. You have to sit on your hands and zip your lip. And there's nothing more stressful in this universe than experience that low sense of control. And we think in the second book, we, we try to address the, the, this, this idea that simply that, that trying to be helpful to your kid and, and not, as Ned said, not just put on a cape and solve the problems, we have to sit on our hand and we have to zip our lip. And that's stressful because it feels like we're doing nothing. So what we try to give parents in the book is language that they can use to talk to themselves in part to manage that stress of not do, where it feels like you're not doing nothing, where, where actually what you're really doing is doing the best possible thing for your kid. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and that's really, you know, what Tina Payne-Bryson would talk about is co-regulating, right? You know, you're, you're being there with your kid, you know, and helping manage their em- emotions, not by solving anything, but just kind of being with them. And of course, we also know that the way that people become emotionally close to one another is, is being together when they're dealing with stuff that's hard. Um, and, as, and as Bill said, it's hard to sit there when our kids are having a hard time yeah, and, and not jump in and want to want to solve it, but just be willing to say, boy, that seems really hard. Yeah, I, I, I'd be really upset if that, if that happened to me. 
We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. One of the things from that anxiety chapter that really, I don't know if I didn't know this before, but you actually say that when a mother of a baby is feeling stress, even her touching the baby will transfer the stress. And it's just such a good reminder how contagious stress is. <laughs> just just be, being in the same room, the baby's stress hormones go up. If, if the mom is given a stressful task, if the mother touches the baby, <laughs> then it's even worse. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's just such a good reminder. And you, I, I love the words wise and responsive. Like mm-hmm. that feels like I will be integrating that into my daily intention. I love that as a goal for how to show up 
And I, I wanted to ask a specific question because, you know, again, when I read these books and talk to people, I'm always trying to channel what I think my listeners would want to know. You have a section in that chapter that talks about, it's a brief section, but you talk about the concept of pity, pitying our kids mm. and, you know, as in feeling bad for something that happens with them. So as I was reading that, I was just thinking about what I hear from so many parents specifically around their kids, maybe social life. My kid has no friends. They've never connected with anyone. They're being excluded. And there's such a deep sense of devastation on the parent's part. I don't know if the child feels as devastated necessarily as the parent does, but it's super complicated. So could you just touch upon that, what the difference is between maybe empathy and pitying and how to hold a space when our kids are very clearly struggling? In, in 1964, R- Rudolf Dreikers wrote the book, Children, the Challenge. And there's a chapter in it called Don't Pity Them. And the idea is that what we want to convey to our kids is a courageous attitude towards life. You know, and, and you know, self-pity is, is never very, <laughs> very attractive for anybody. And the idea, if we don't, don't want kids to feel sorry for themselves, then, then ideally we work at not feeling sorry for them. Uh, That's the basic rationale and and much easier said than done. But when when I read that and I, I, you know, I see kids who are really in families who have really very, very serious challenges. I see kids who will will never be independent. And the idea is is that we, what we want to do is want to remember that, that, that no matter what the situation is, our, our, our job is to love them and support them. And that, that, that if we if we can can do the kind of mental work not to feel sorry for them, it helps them to not feel sorry for themselves. Ned, do you want to add on, buddy? Yeah, it's funny. I was just having coffee, uh, um, Bill, with a, a mutual friend and client that we have, and and she has been doing work of late with refugees, and was asking me about how is it that that some people become resilient and other people don't, and and it was it's a mom who has three kids who had suffered the um, systemic um, rapes and brutalization of the part of Africa that they come from and say, how can, how, how, how? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know that situation exactly, but it's fair that despite trauma as terrible as trauma can be, they still want their lives to work out. And they, and they, you know, and so it's, um, we don't move past those things, but you can move on right? Rather than moving on, you move forward, right? Those things are always going to be part of, of lives. And, and same thing, you know, traumatic childhood experiences. And, and ideally, it's, it's, it's never anything worse than being mistreated by, you know, friends who were friends and who are no longer friends. But we may not move on, but we definitely need to move forward. Um, and so we can say, gosh, that's really hard. But we don't want to go down and wallow with them, because it makes it more likely that they get stuck there, right? I mean, it's one of the things, you know, research on, you know, I'm thinking about Julie Lithcott Hames' new book of of your turn, how to how to be uh, how to be an adult, and and talks about we want to as adults, we want adulthood to look good, right? You know, so if, as parents, right, we want to say that that I can still be happy, even though you're having a hard time, and I'm really sorry that the, the life is hard for you right now, but we don't help it doesn't help them by our suffering more. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, we all are going to go through times that are hard. Nobody gets through life without things being difficult. And we want to say this is part of life and we keep working and climbing towards the light. Yeah. There's a quote that I really, again, stood out of me. This is what you could say to a child who may be wallowing a bit. 
Um, this feels like a circle now. You say one thing and I counter with another. I love you. And if you're suffering, I want to do everything I can to help you. But I don't think this pattern helps either one of us. And I was like, yeah, that's a really lovely way to show empathy and not kind of jump into the pool, which I am guilty of doing often. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Can you just talk about empathy then just a, a little bit more for parents who may feel like they are by empathizing are actually reinforcing a negative mindset or outlook? Well, so in many ways, empathy is just recognizing, you know, I'd be, I'd be really upset too, if I didn't get invited to that party, right? I can, I can understand why you're so frustrated because you worked so hard to make the team and you, and you didn't make it. You know, it, it makes all the sense in the world that you're upset because you're, you know, you feel like your teacher didn't, you know, give you, g- give you a fair warning and you felt like you're surprised by the test. And so it, it, it doesn't mean that we agree with what they're feeling. It's simply saying you know, th- that I can understand why that's hard. Yeah. In, in the book, we talk about um, this new space program. It's an acronym. Uh, it's a program out of Yale for supporting uh, parents who, who have anxious kids and, and one of the one of the things that parents are encouraged to do is is, is to, to develop these supportive statements, and, this, and it, which which involves empathy and the expression of confidence. So you say to a kid, "I, I know that you're really anxious about this, and I know that you're really upset about this, and I'm 100 percent confident you can handle it." And I think that that's in, in part what, what what the difference between empathy and pity is. You know that. I, I'm pretty humble about knowing what's so, what's supposed to happen in somebody's life. <laughs> so, so, and I think that, that so I, I personally, in working with kids I work with, I assume that where they are is where they're supposed to be in, in, in this world. And I, I try to focus on how do we help them? How do we support them and not feel that something is terribly wrong or, or, or that this is great tragedy? Because I, I don't want kids to see themselves that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you're saying that, it reminds me again of the importance of us doing our own work, right? So that we don't get tangled up and get enmeshed in what's going on. Uh, You know, it does require a bit of distance, um, which is easier when you're not the parent, right? To, To get kind of sucked into and really be able to hold that space. I have a student who just passed the test to become a lifeguard. And I was thinking about thinking about you know what's it really like to be a lifeguard and and from you know in movies it's always a dramatic thing that the person dives into the water and pulls a person out. But as I understand it, the training is always you do everything you can not to get in the water first. <laughs> you try to throw them a life ring. You try to throw them a rope. You try to throw them right. And if you have to, you get you go in the water with them. But it's it, you put yourself in peril, and you're much less powerful if you're in the water with them than if you're on the if you're on the shore. So true. Excellent point. I just want to say, um, Bill, because you mentioned the space that um, I actually have. This is the book you're referring, uh, <laughs> yeah. Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD by Eli Lebowitz. And I actually am mm-hmm. interviewing him next week. So his episode, I think, will be released about two weeks after this one. So you, listeners, check that out because you can learn more about that. Love it. wonderful. So um, Self-Driven Child really focuses a lot on, you've already mentioned this, the parent as a consultant. Um, You do circle back to that in this book. And something that struck me, again, I'm hearing from so many parents whose kids are mentally checked out right now. As we're recording this, we're all like limping across the finish line of the school year. (laughs) It's almost June. Um, This episode is coming out in August. I don't know that things are going to change that much in terms of motivation over the summer. Um, But 
you remind us many times um, in, in a compassionate way that when parents nag, their kids come to depend on it. And that, again, was one of my many underlining moments in this book. Can you talk more about that? You know, what is nagging about schoolwork? What is that actually really doing? And why do we do it? Well, I, I think in part because it increases our sense of control. We're, we're doing something, even though even though if we think about it, it is, it, does it motivate my kid? Well, not really, but at least eventually I make it unpleasant enough that it'll get it done. You know, and I, I think that in, in my, my experience working with, with, with kids who, who don't get their schoolwork done or have trouble getting started on it, there's usually two explanations. They have ADHD. They can't make themselves focus or they're anxious. And the major manifestation of anxiety is avoidance. And so in, in the self-driven child, we, we, we emphasize we, we want kids to be clear about who's responsible for what. And that's why we, we, we say to parents, tell your kid, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. Because I want to be clear about that, that I, I want to support you in any way I can, but I don't want to take responsibility for something that's yours. And in many ways, that, that kind of nagging, it, it allows anxious kids not to have to think about, I, I better get started in my work because they, they just wait until their parents nag and eventually they'll, they get it done. It allows them to avoid and um, with kids who have ADHD, it just kind of just <laughs> tends to piss them off. <laughs> and eventually, they, they make it start out. They may not, uh, but it's certainly not a very effective technique. Ned, do you want to jump in? Oh, I'm, I'm just thinking about it. I had a student who graduated. Um, Sidwell Friends, which here in D.C. is probably the most academically like, sort of intense place. Uh, and he was a straight A student. And that, that place doesn't give out, you know, A's like candy. And he, his parents had, had, had come to hear Bill and me talk about the self-driven child. And I asked him, as his parents came to the book talk, I said, had, has, they read the book. He said, yeah. I said, has it made any difference for you? And he said, well, they've stopped asking me, shouldn't you be doing your homework? And I said, well, well tell me more. He said, well, honest to gosh, the, the more, every time they'd say, shouldn't you be doing your homework, it's something maybe not want to do my homework. Because it, you know, he felt disrespected, you know, he was already getting his straight A's, right? And it, and it lowered his sense of control. And and exactly as Bill said, we we do this because it makes us feel better. Because it's so hard to sit there and do nothing. My son is a first year student in college, and he is he is <laughs> writing papers. It, his bet noir, right? It's hard for him to motivate to do these because he's ADHD. And watching him not write papers through high school was just painful. I mean, it's just, it was so, so hard. And I just had to keep telling myself, as Bill would say, whose problem is it? And so I would offer help. But at some point, I just have to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go for another walk. I'm going to go because, <laughs> because I just can't, you know, and, and now he's in college and he, you know, he still has some papers that are overdue. And I said, I, my, my hope is you get those done by next Saturday when we pick you up from college. But it's not my problem. And it's, it's, it takes every fiber in my being not to, you know, schedule something with a writing center or jump in or nag him or, or whatever. But, you know, he has the brain that he, ha- that he has. And he knows that we will help him in every possible way. That's been made ab- abundantly clear. But if we jump in and, and make this happen, it won't be helpful for our relationship or for him long term. Because we all know, if we reflect on our lives, there are times that we struggled. And it's those times of struggle that helped us figure out who we are, what system work, works better, our own sense of resilience, our confidence and our ability to handle hard things, where if we jumped in and solved it over and over and over, and he got the paper handed on time, well, it'd be lovely, but we would be depriving him of that very struggle that he needs to figure out how to navigate his life for himself. But it isn't easy. 
Yes. And as you say that, I'm thinking of a conversation I had with a parent who understandably wanted to preempt struggles. And and I was trying to suggest that actually the struggle is where they need to struggle. That's part of how they they grow and learn. But that's such a hard thing for, for us to really lean into. And I appreciate, Ned, you sharing that you're, I mean, you're walking this walk too. And it's, um, you're, you're a couple years ahead in terms of where your kids are. Literally, you're walking the walk. Yeah. And um, that's just really comforting to me to know, to see that you're in this. And here's the fun thing. For people who don't know, I run a company that that does that helps people get into college. So it's test prep and, and college counseling and tutoring. So I have an entire army of tutors. And I could have designated all the best tutors in my group. You're going to help my daughter in physics. You're going to help my son in this, whatever. I could have tutored them up to their ears. But I knew that's not the right thing to do. I let them know, if you want to talk with Kate to help with the paper, if you want to talk with Aaron for some chemistry, let me know. And they're happy and they're happy to help. And so, so I'm being supportive, but did not, did not put in place for them help that they didn't want. Because, you know, we should all be trying to play the long game. I mean, I always bristle when I, when I have parents who were, were kids, that there, there are things that could be going better, particularly in terms of their mental health. And then a parent will respond with, yeah, but, but, but he's getting all A's. And I think if your only single criterion for success is that kids are getting A's, you don't know what you're talking about. Because Bill and I know all these kids who had straight A's until they crumbled and they ended up at the manager clinic, right? We want to think much broader and much longer term than the next A. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you had anything to add, Bill, but... Well, just that, I walk this walk, too, with with my own kids, and one of whom could have educated herself, <laughs> and the other one, you know, has ADHD and some learning disability kind of issues, and he didn't fight help. He was open to help, and I would offer to help, and sometimes he accepted, sometimes he wouldn't. He had a good tutor for years, and he got a PhD in psychology, and he's, he's, he's works with with the top executives at uh, Goldman Sachs, and is and just an incredible human being. And I think in part because stuff didn't come easy to him, and he, he's he's great with people, and um, he's a wonderful wonderful person. But I never worked harder than he did to, to, to try to help him academically. And I always just said, "This is your work, and if, if I can help you, let me know." That's another quote I wrote down. I'm not willing to work harder than you do because I care too much about you to weaken you. I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. But yeah, I think so many of us are working harder. We are doing all the things. And what you remind us in both of your books, but you can't really hear it enough, uh, is that we cannot make our kids care about anything. We cannot make them feel motivated. We cannot make them care about their schoolwork. And that is a really hard thing. And so I love the reminder of remembering the long game, which is so much longer than anyone could imagine. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a long, long game. <laughs> and I will just say that I I think I highlighted the entire parent as consultant chapter because you have so many examples of language to use. And um, as I'm reading, I'm like, okay, the app needs to come next. Like there needs to be some way to be able to recall (laughs) these things. Um, So just so helpful. We'll be right back after this quick break. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now 
we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So, join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking It. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? laughing in the face of motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. I do want to just touch upon ADHD quickly. Because you both have experience with that in your own lives. Certainly many, many listeners have kids who have ADHD. And it's tricky, right? Because, you know, you talk about every time we ineffectually tell a child something, it weakens our ability to communicate with them. And a lot of these kids don't hear us the first time or the second time. And so I'm just wondering, how do you navigate that dance of a child who has attention issues and who may not be tuned in? What's that balance like of us not nagging them and not setting them up for failure? I'm sorry, that could be its own episode, but see what you can do. <laughs> well, when my son was in high school, and I never knew about his assignments or tests unless he told me, but I'd pick him up from baseball practice and he'd say, I got a test tomorrow, I got to study for it. And if I noticed you know, he's kind of avoiding it, I'd say, do you want me to bug you about it? You want me to kind of remind you? And I said, how many times do you want me to remind you? There's so much of what we try to do is we try to get buy-in. We, so that we aren't just trying to, we, we don't want to just meet constantly with kids' resistance. The bottom line is that we offer help and, and we, we can build in structure as much as possible, but we don't try to force. And I think that, and, and certainly if, if you've got a four-year-old with, with wild ADHD who's out of control, then, then, then you work on behavior modification you, to kind of get some control so you can live with the kid. But, but then you, you focus on, as they get older, you focus on this autonomy piece. This, this is their life and supporting them in figuring out their own life and how to make it work and offering. I, we want kids to have all the help that they need. We just don't want them to spend all their energy to, to, to resisting other people's attempts to try to get them to do stuff. It's just a crappy use of their energy. We also, we spent some time talking about a guy named Ron McGinn, who's this kind of guru on relationships and talks about how we make deposits kind of in a healthy relationship by, by showing care and respect. 
And I know a lot of parents will say, well, I care enormously. That's, that's why, that's why I'm on him all the time to get him to do this stuff because I can't watch him fail. I mean, I, I, I love him too much to let that happen, but it misses the respect part, particularly kids become adolescents. So I have this boy I'm working with right now who's a junior in high school who, I mean, one of the most ADHD kids I've ever met. My wife overhears us on Zoom. She's like, how old is he? Sounds like he's 12. I'm like, yeah, that's about where his prefrontal cortex is. And he has an army of tutors working with him. And he'll get 100 on one quiz and then flunk the next two. And from the earliest, so I'm doing this test prep stuff with him. I really took this perspective of, I know that this stuff is hard for you. And here's what I'd like to suggest, right? And and very much, I'm a consultant. I'm not going to work harder than you, you know, respect, 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 because I think he feels a really disrespected by a lot of the other people in his life. And it was a real leap of faith for me because I didn't really know how this was going to work out. But I was working on the assumption that the most important thing of this outcome is not what I could teach him about grammar or math, is how hard was he going to work when he got to this actual test? Was you know Because he's about as Jekyll and Hyde as you get. Which kid was going to show up? And that's all that I was playing for. And I got an email from his mom yesterday who was like, basically, how the hell did this happen? This, how did he get the score? Oh my, you know, we're all going out for ice cream kind of stuff. And I'm like, first, I'm like, oh, thank God. Right. But But the second thing was, you know, these kids are hard. These kids are hard. And part of it is when I was really trying to talk with him, there was a great thing uh, years ago about Bill Clinton and some speech he was giving for the DNC. Uh, And then Nick Fowles for for the Atlantic analyzed his speech. He said, the thing about Bill Clinton is that he talks to people like they have a brain in their head. And so rather than words, 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 I would pause, make sure, you know, this kid was looking up from a computer. Said, so, so this is kind of important. And you'd pause and make sure I had his attention. And then he'd go on it. And then when we talked too many words and I can see him going and got someplace else, so I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do this to him because he's not trying to be inattentive. He's got the brain that he has. And he's like a 12-year-old in a 17-year-old's body. And it's just going to take a while. And so I know that he's not trying to be disrespectful for me. And I'm not going to respond by treating him like he's 12. I try to be as respectful as I, as I possibly can. And it's hard. It is hard with kids who are wildly inattentive because in part because we get so worried and we think that if I tell him 17 times, it's going to go better. <laughs> yeah, that's super helpful. And um, so many nuggets in there. And again, just that reminder that it's going to take a while and that these kids uh, prefrontal cortex, or as you refer to as the PFC throughout mm-hmm. the book, um, it develops later in a lot of differently wired kids. And so I hear so many stories from, you know, either adults who share with me or parents who are like, my child, you know, this happened and this didn't work out and this this school d- crashed and burned in college. And and now my child is doing this and they found their thing. But it, it tends to happen in mid to late 20s for a lot of these kids. And doesn't mean they're not going to get there, but they really need that respect. I, I got a Christmas card this year from a family and the front of the card, it said, you were right. And I opened it up and I had the picture of these three, these three adults and, and their, and their spouses. And I tested all three for, followed them for years, starting from the, probably the, the early to mid nineties. And, and, and I hadn't seen any of them for 10 years. And the, the, the oldest one had flunked out of college twice. Uh, they're all a hot mess at one point. And just the, the idea is simply that it's, it's, it's hard to, if, unless you've seen it uh, enough, it's hard to really understand how different a 14-year-old prefrontal cortex is 
from a 16-year-old or 18-year-old or 22-year-old, to 20, to between 23 and 26, you see dramatic changes. Mm-hmm. It's good to remember. It is. So I wanted to, before we wrap up, I mean, I could, again, this could be a multi-part series, this conversation, but I want also people to go out and get this book because it is, again, I'm just gushing a lot, but it's an incredible book and so helpful. You have a chapter in there called Talking to Kids About the Pursuit of Happiness. And I loved this chapter so much because it's not... it you know, we're talking about motivation and anxiety and empathy and all these pieces. And then you just tackle happiness, which is something that so many of our kids are not experiencing. We know that mental health challenges for kids and depression and existential angst, especially now is just really off the charts. And I so appreciated what you shared. And also just, it struck me that we as parents often don't explicitly talk about happiness with our kids. It's just not something we do. So I'd love to know a little bit more about why you wanted to include that chapter and kind of what your hope for is for that chapter. One, one reason for me is that I, I feel that, that given how much misery there is among young people, that we just set the bar so low. And, you know, Martin Seligman, the, who started the whole field of positive psychology, said 20 years ago, he said, you know, psychology is always just study. What's wrong with people? Why don't, we, why don't we look at people who are really happy and nicely adjusted and let's, let's, let's figure out what, what they're like and what they do. And it's just, there's this whole science of, of, how to, of how to be happier, how to be happy and then what it is. And, and also the, the science of how useful it is to be happy. And it just seemed to me cruel not, not to be talking with kids about stuff like this. I mean, I, I gave a lecture in Houston about the self-driven child a couple of years ago. And I asked these student government, uh, uh, high school students and student government, I said, how, how many of you want to be happy as adults? And they all really kind of sheepishly raised their hand, got a duh. And I said, what do you understand about what it takes to be happy as an adult? And this one kid said, well, we understand that if you get into a good enough college, everything is set which is just colossally wrong. And, and it, it was part of our motivation for let, let's try to really, let, let's talk with kids. Let's teach them what we understand about being happy. Let's give them a freaking chance. Yeah, it was funny. This, the same parent I was just talking with, and Bill knows his family well, um, the girl is, is now doing a research, um, head to, headed towards medical school and doing this research, don't, you know, free, un, uncompensated research. And the people there are just not nice. They're really treating her terribly. And the, the she, daughter doesn't kind of know how to navigate her way out of this. And I just, I just kind of laughed, you just because these folks, they're technically brilliant, but they're not so great interpersonally. And um, we started just talking about empathy and, and connection and how important that is. And, and the mom is saying, I'm trying to help her understand that. And I said, one thing that occurs to me is that it's probably hard for a kid who's 14 or 16 or even 24 to know what the long-term benefits are of relationships that, you know, that we, we get out of this world, what we put into it, including relationships and, and the long time, the long time benefits that come to you. If, if you're, if you treat people well, and, and they look for opportunities to treat you well going forward, because in the, in high school, it feels like, my gosh, if I stop, you know, if I stop to help someone up or to be kind from them, they're going to get ahead of me and, and, and get into a better college. But when you, this, this research that Bill talked about, of, of Martin Seligman, the, this PERMA and the kind of five attributes of, you know, positive emotion. Some of that's, are you born glass half full or glass half empty? But, it, but engagement and relationships and meaning 
and then achievement. And achievement is is an important part of it. You know, a good college and accolades and money and material goods, so on and so forth. And and, and there's nothing wrong with those. It's simply that you can't meet non-material needs with material things. And so, I mean, Bill and I have had m- several billionaires that we've worked with who had everything in the world, except for peace and happiness, because it's achievement, 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 achievement. And think what that must feel like to kill yourself, to achieve everything you think, and you're still not happy. And so that's why I, I was so happy when Bill brought this point up and we really started exploring it of why don't we start as early as possible, not to poo-poo achievement, but to simply point out to kids that happiness is much broader than that. I mean, I always get these parents saying, well, you know, and all she wants to do is hang out with her friends. And I'm thinking, how do you learn to, to, to develop healthy relationships and friendships without spending time in relationships and friendships? I mean, the 22% of millennials say they have no friends. And we know that loneliness is a bigger risk factor for death than smoking friggin' cigarettes, right? Why don't we take time and let kids know? It's incredibly valuable for you to spend time. You know, we were just talking about this the other day, Debbie, with, with, with teen and say all the self-care. Well, no, no, no. Self-care, yeah. Connect with other people because that's we support other people and they support us. And if, if all of us want not only kids to suffer less in high school, but, but to Bill's point, to be happy, let them know that the relationships in their lives are as great a source of happiness as anything that they can ever achieve. Yeah, that chapter, there was just so many aha moments for me. And and again, not what I expected to read when I turned the page, but so useful because you really talk about how it's possible to cultivate happiness. Um, you talk about that. And I think a lot of a lot of kids, especially if they're feeling depressed right now, may not see that they have control over that. And actually, there, there are a lot of things that we can do. So I really appreciated that. And we're going to wrap up, but I just want to say there are two other chapters we didn't talk about, but I just want to mention that they're in there. You have a great chapter about healthy expectations, which is really about potential. And I think, again, super relevant, especially for parents of gifted and two-week kids, because we feel like there's all this potential and they're not, you know, they're not reaching what we see for them. So that's wonderful. You have a chapter on sleep and tech, which is fantastic. And then you have a chapter at the end where you really talk about consequences. And I just want to say what I so appreciated are so many examples. So anyone reading this book is going to see themselves. They're going to identify with some of the stories. And you talk about, here's how it played out. Here's here's a different way if, if this conversation had unfolded in a more positive or respectful way. So anyway, just incredible. Congratulations on the book. And um, as we wrap up, is there one thing you hope that parents feel or experience um, after they've read this book? What is kind of your greatest hope for it? Well, I'll just mention that being close to a parent is about as close to a silver bullet for protecting kids emotionally. And so we, we, I just hope that the tools that we, we, we talk about in the book can, can help parents get a little closer to their kids and, and vice versa. And I, I probably echo the point made earlier that as parents, we love our kids and we want to, we always want to help and it just, it isn't intuitive that when our kids are having a hard time, that those two natural tendencies we have of wanting to jump in and fix it or, you know, kind of relentlessly soothe them, you know, that, that, that has value. But as we move forward, 
we want to we want to use the power of empathy. We want to use the power of validation. We want to use the language of a non-anxious consultant to, to put kids in a position where they can solve things for themselves and they can develop tools to cope and soothe themselves. And we're really we're helping them in that situation, but we are not doing those things for them. And in part because there's nothing more frustrating than trying to do that and being ineffective. But our job as parents, as you said before, Debbie, is, is to play the long game, that I'm not trying to get my kid through this this day, this hour, this test. And sometimes we do. But I really want to be thinking about the long term of where do, what, where, where do I want this kid to be at age 20 or, or 30? And what relationship do I want to, what do I want to have with them? So good. I love that. And what relationship do I want to have with them? That is really, yeah, that's at the heart of all of this. So thank you so much to both of you. I know we went long. Um, I really appreciate you taking all of this time. Listeners, please go to the show notes pages. I will have links to everything we went over, including how to connect. Um, Ned and Bill aren't super active on social media, but I will share where you can connect with them, um, where to get the book. Listen to the last episode we did together. The book, again, is called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress, Tolerance, and a Happy Home. So thank you, Ned and Bill. It was just a pleasure to spend this time with you. And vice versa. Always a delight to be with you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. You can find links to all the resources my guests and I discussed on the detailed show notes page. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform, editing, production, and more. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for considering. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.